From the Chipstone Foundation, you're listening to Cellar Door, a podcast about objects. I'm Pierce Gelly. A warning before we begin this episode, insofar as a radio story can be, the story is graphic. If you're sensitive to blood, some scenes might upset you. There's also some discussion of sex. This episode is called The Plastinarium. One afternoon in 1848 in Vermont, a railroad crew set about clearing rock from the site of a new train track. As usual, the foreman drilled a hole in the rock. As usual, he filled the hole with blasting powder. As usual, he packed in the powder with his tamping iron, a three-foot, seven-inch metal rod with a blunt foot and a pointed top. But when he thumped the bar down inside the hole, something unusual happened. Maybe the bar struck a spark from the rock. The powder exploded prematurely, and the force of the explosion shot the bar's pointed end upward into the man's cheek and out the top of his head. The bar landed 80 feet away, point first, and was picked up smeared with blood and brain. Somehow the man survived and greeted the local doctor with a wry one-liner. Here's business enough for you, he said, and tilted his head forward to show the hole. The man's name was Phineas Gage. Doctor after doctor examined him, noting changes the injury seemed to have wrought on Gage's character. Accounts of these changes vary. It's generally accepted that he seemed newly forgetful. Some say the formerly mild Gage also began to swear uncontrollably. Gage made his way from doctor to doctor to Harvard, where he would become a literal textbook case, setting up a course of inquiry that would lead to modern scientific cerebral localization, the idea that different parts of our brains do different things. During his time at Harvard, Gage donated the fateful bar to the collection of Harvard's Warren Anatomical Museum, where someone inscribed it with the words, This is the bar that was shot through the head of Mr. Phineas P. Gage at Cavendish, Vermont, September 14, 1848. He fully recovered from the injury and deposited this bar in the Museum of the Medical College of Harvard University. That's Dominic Hall, curator of the Warren, where the bar still resides. Dominic told me that soon after donating this bar, Gage actually returned for it. Gage couldn't work on the railway anymore, so he decided he'd take his bar and go on tour, making money by exhibiting himself alongside it. He called it his constant companion. After Gage died in 1860, at 36 years old, Gage's doctor persuaded his mother to exhume her son's skull and donate it to Harvard along with the bar. Today, the skull and the bar sit together at the Warren Anatomical Museum. Can you describe what we're looking at? Sure, so it's uh, Phineas Gage's skull in two pieces. The top's been sliced off to show the inside. And that gives you the best impression of all the interior destruction that happened when the tamping iron passed behind his left eye. The damage that makes Gage's skull a remarkable scientific specimen. But although Gage's skull remains a scientific specimen, it's hard to look at the skull without imagining the person, the guy who returned to this museum and said, hey, give me back my bar. I mean, people know him by name, which is really rare for an individual in an anatomical museum. So you're aware of people coming here to see this specimen? Yes. I mean, I have conversations yeah. with people in the gallery about Phineas Gage probably weekly. 
everybody comes to see Phineas Gage. Like, yeah. like how? Who's everybody? Middle school students, you know, through senior citizens, people internationally come to see Phineas Gage. I mean, he's so fixed in the sort of psychological and neurological literature that when people come to Harvard Medical School for other things, maybe conferences, they'll stop by just to see Gage. More so than most anatomical specimens, Phineas Gage's skull indicates the porousness of the border between person and thing. It's possible to look at Gage's skull beside his bar and read both his objects. Gage himself is gone. But he's also right here. Dominic showed me his visitor's book. Son read about P. Gage in school, loved bumping into him here. Yeah, so amazing, very impressed by the collections, especially for Gage's skull. Great to see Phineas Gage in real life. Princess death. death. Today, most people who encounter anatomical specimens do so through Body Worlds. For those not familiar with Body Worlds, it's a series of traveling exhibitions that feature human bodies on display. Each body has been plastinated, a process whereby technicians replace all perishable fluids with silicone, transforming corpses into nearly indestructible lessons in human anatomy. The inventor of this process, Dr. Gunther von Hagens, produces these specimens in a German laboratory that sits just across the river from Poland. A few years ago, Zhang Yu got a job there and got a closer look than most at the line between objects and us. I should say here that he didn't have any reservations going into the job. He just thought it sounded high-tech and glamorous. I think I was really excited because of it was going to be in Germany. It was going to be really, you know, the flights were all sponsored and I would have really new experiences in a new country. The company would pay him well, split his salary between euros and Chinese yuan. They'd even provide housing. First day, it was, you know, already getting dark and I was quickly shown around. There's a permanent setup of all the exhibits on the first floor of the main building of the facility, which is called Plastinarium. And uh, I went through there. He saw a man, all muscles and bones, holding aloft the slack suit of his skin. He saw a cloud of tiny red veins in the shape of a woman. Confronted with these images, Zheng Yu wondered for the first time what he'd got himself into. So they showed me my office, and they also showed me the room they, 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 they arranged for me inside the facility. They'd offered him housing, but this was the first he'd heard about living on site. He was horrified. Yeah, I would have said no, I didn't want to. But now that he was here, he didn't have much choice. It was such a small town, so it was nothing called rent an apartment or anything. Nobody does that in the town. So another option would be the only one hotel in the town. But uh, I guess they didn't take that option for me. And then everyone went home. Sitting in his new bedroom, Zheng Yu realized with a sense of dread that he'd left his luggage in his office. He went to get it. But the facility was so big. I was totally lost. The first trip from, from my room to the office was really terrifying because I had to go through very dark, totally dark places. And I, all that I saw was just like a very dimmed light on the wall. And I assumed that was the switch. He flipped the switch. The light came on. 
Right beside him stood a skeleton covered in a fur of red veins, glass eyeballs filling its sockets. It was, uh, it was really terrifying. Yeah, I can imagine. It's sort of the stuff of horror movies. Yeah, it was, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, they set him up with a very fast computer and had him fix errors in enormous HD images of organs. They'd hired him to work with photographers on converting real specimens into digital models for a virtual exhibition. And despite his disgust, he just dealt with it. I still remember the first time a photographer called me and asked me if I could just bring another specimen number, blah, blah, from that room to her studio. I said, sure. I didn't really expect what exactly it was. It's an arm of a human. Literally an arm, right? And uh, I've never done that. I've never touched that. Yeah, I remember like I had to call her. I said, yeah, well, I don't think I can help you. And you probably have to come yourself or ask someone else she just had to ask me why what happened because i just said no i just can't i can't i can't i don't know why i just can't do that yeah i guess i was really just really um like a usual person we all have this instinctive fear of death unlike his new colleagues zheng yu hadn't undergone a doctor's transformation he retained a civilian fear Dr. Gunter von Hagens, founder of Body Worlds, has written about this fear. He says it's all about categories. According to the doctor, the language of science maintains a fine but clear distinction between a body and a corpse. The word corpse describes a dead body we're obliged to bury because it'll soon decompose. But von Hagens' indestructible plastinated bodies are stable and dry. Contra the way of all flesh, these plastinated specimens will live, in the doctor's words, for didactic eternity, longer than the mummies and pharaohs of Egypt. So these bodies aren't corpses in any meaningful way, and thus are translated away from legal and moral obligations to mourn or fear. Body World's own publicity materials write their project into the enlightened history of anatomy, the once taboo scientific project that made medicine modern. In photos, even mid-surgery, Dr. Von Hagens never appears without a wide-brimmed black hat seemingly styled on that of the surgeon in Rembrandt's 1631 painting The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, an image in which a black-hatted doctor picks apart an arm for a group of students. It's an icon of anatomy's bold red frontier. But all this rationalization is far easier said than done. Zheng Yu spent his days among the dead terrified and lonely. I didn't know much about the town before I got there, and then my life began, and I I realized that there were really not much going on. Every day at night, I was so bored. So I started looking into the the demographic of, uh, of that town. I started to learn about the company, and I was shocked when I saw how many, actually, corpses the company stored how much more corpses than living people in the same small town. One day a doctor from Canada arrived and Zheng Yu finally made an English-speaking friend. She was literally my only friend, so we were hanging out a lot. So this one day she called me on my local phone and asked me if I wanted to have lunch with her. I said, sure. And she said she was busy in the middle of something and she wanted me to wait for her in her office a little bit. So I went to, to, to her office and I got in and I felt very uncomfortable because she was um, dissecting a corpse. 
and specifically skinning the skull. It was seriously horrifying. I had to tell her that, all right, I'll just wait for you from outside. She just didn't seem to understand. A few days after that, she invited me to have dinner with her at her home. When I got there, she was cutting beef. It would be very normal scene to see, but because I saw a few days before that she was using some knife and cutting a human, like skinning that skull, and I just felt really uncomfortable. I felt seriously disgust. Um, I didn't want to eat the beef that she cut, uh, but I guess I still did. I After her first bite, I started to bite my beef as well. <laughs> Zhang Yu had reached a border. And I realized that this is really not practical. Among his colleagues, he was the only one who couldn't touch the specimens, and he'd be working here for a long time. And I knew I have to conquer this uncomfortness or fear or whatever that is. More than most people, Zhang Yu had had close contact with death. He'd seen his first dead body at 12 or 13. In China, since 1990-something, in cremation became compulsory. And the regulation included the corpses that had been buried 10 years before the date became effective. It was so absurd. So what it meant was that my grandma was dug out and cremated. And uh, nobody was paying for that. And my dad, who was the oldest son of my grandma, had to do that. It was a, it was a bad, really bad experience. My brother was not allowed to go. He was, I guess for them, they believed that the, the kids shouldn't go there. But because I was the oldest in my generation, I just had to be there. Um, so yeah, uh, only my dad, my uncles, and me. And my dad and my uncles went there and and we dug the cascade out. I was there watching this whole time. They opened the cascade and uh, I saw the clothes, the clothes um, vaporated very soon. And uh, they pour a bottle of liquor in there. And then my dad literally picked up every piece of bones of my grandma. And then we, we moved uh, together and then incremated my grandma. But I remember my dad was very calm and I knew it. I knew that nobody can be that calm, but my dad had to be calm and somebody had to do that. And my dad did it. And uh, it was really impressive. There are always things that you have to do and Yes, there are things that must be must be done. So yeah, just deal with it. <laughs> At Body Worlds, Zheng Yu adopted a similar pragmatic mindset. Just deal with it. So I I, I started to try. The first thing I tried was to go through the exhibits. The second step was touching some bones and skeletons, which 
I felt easier to begin with. Yeah. Then later, I started to touch the flesh, the skin, and, and the skull. Tried first time of putting my fingers into the eyes. And, uh, then later, I, I started to touch you know, livers and stomach. The last thing was the brain. Why did you save the brain for last? I. <laughs> I don't know, like I just, I thought it, it would break or something very fragile and I didn't really want to have that slimy feeling. It was so weird and I remember when I touched the brain because um, I had to move it for the photographer. Uh, when I moved it, the first impression was, oh, this is much heavier than I thought. I assumed it would feel like water, like in that volume and weight, but it would be you know, maybe double the weight. So I touched the brain and I told myself, mission accomplished. <laughs> After I worked there for this time, I just I don't have that fear anymore. I, well, I, at least I, I, I can say that for now. I, I don't have really, I don't have that fear. If I see a dead body, it's fine. Um, I don't know where that fear is gone. Dr. Von Hagens writes that on the far side of fear, there's knowledge. His plastinates, quote, aid in overcoming taboos that are hostile to the body. They permit us to satisfy our deep curiosity about our own persons and to open our hearts to ourselves. Our bodies can thus undergo a change in meaning, from a grisly unknown quantity to an intimate main attraction of creation, end quote. In Rembrandt's anatomy lesson, the students' faces register the shock of this change. Perhaps it's their first time. One student stares at the body, but the rest look either at a propped open textbook, at the viewer, or at the doctor, whose expression is dispassionate behind his Van Dyke beard. The body on the table, the body over which the students bend, is Aris Kint, an armed robber hanged about an hour earlier. There's a copy of the painting in the lobby of the Countway Library of Medicine at Harvard, home of the Warren Anatomical Museum. The Warren is full of bodies, most of them from the 1800s. Generally speaking, these bodies were not donated by their original owners. Conceptually, these medical museums exist in a pre-whole-body gift era. That's Dominic Hall, curator of the Warren, from the beginning of the story. There are very few states that even had laws sort of setting up the mechanism that would allow one to give their body to science. Until the 20th century, the general rule was medical schools received unclaimed people who died in custody of the state. Relatives and friends had 36 hours to claim the body, after which period those individuals would be made available to medical schools for educational purposes. With a pretty limited supply of corpses, medical schools inclined toward model making. If you've got one body, you can let a few students learn from dissecting it, whereas countless students can learn from a model. But in 1968, the Uniform Whole Body Gift Act set up an official mechanism whereby any living adult could donate his or her remains while still alive. According to von Hagen's writings, the German equivalent was a 1989 slash in death benefits, which caused a surge in donations that rendered unnecessary the century-old German law that sent unclaimed bodies to medical schools. You now have a community of people who are donating their bodies to medical schools for scientific dissection. And so that too changes a medical school's relationship with the human body and the cadaver. Museums like the Warren began to shrink, 
since learning now took place right on the operating table. You no longer need these giant reference collections when you have this sort of tangible gift that someone gave you right in front of you. Today, anatomical specimens like Phineas Gage's skull no longer serve a central purpose of educating students. Gage's skull in particular seems to have returned to a place where people read it as an individual rather than a medical text. In the tradition of the Warren's human specimens, body world specimens are for medical education, but they aren't just for medical students. They're also for us, for people like Zhang Yu and me, who generally wouldn't have reason to study human landscapes in such detail. They're a sort of public anatomy lesson, and as such, they're very carefully considered. I guess it's because the blood is all taken out, all drained out. They look really, really pale. It looks fake, so they have to paint it and to make it like, like a real flesh. This is the paradox of body worlds. In order to create a specimen that's legible to lay people, the plastinator must mediate between the realities of human bodies and the visitor's ideas about them. Von Hagens writes that when he began plastinating, he didn't think about aesthetics. He'd twist the leg to show the sole of a foot, or he'd crank the head backward to display the jaw. As a result, quote, the specimens either appeared rigid as lifeless mannequins, or they looked unnaturally distorted or even grotesque, end quote. So Von Hagens conceived of body worlds now distinctive poses, a runner frozen at full tilt, a chess player, a fencer, Von Hagen's theorizes that rather than looking at these bodies with revulsion, visitors identify with the lifelike poses, such that the specimen's authenticity doesn't inspire horror, but rather, transparent learning. Though by another token, don't the poses also remind us that these bodies are more object than human? You don't need to animate a living human. This laborious transparency goes deeper when you consider the plastinate's creation. One thing you want to know is that the full body specimens you have seen at any exhibition didn't belong to any one specific person. It's a constructed person. So the liver might be from person A, and the finger might be from person B. People will manually pick the organs off one by one, and then choose what organ they want to use, and then and people will just like play Lego and put things together. Maybe it's an exchange. To show how human anatomy works, the plastinators create perfect bodies whose perfection kind of renders them less human than the imperfect individuals with which the project began. Body World's project of education requires a mindset that's pragmatic and bluntly materialistic. Because they have a clear idea what specimen they want to make and what purpose that specimen serves. And then they, they choose that specific part to serve their purpose. I remember they were like picking a liver, a fat liver, and they have to pick through hundreds of livers. And I found one that is really clear and it's very easy to show what fat liver means. One day, Zheng Yu saw two livers that changed his life. Specimen was uh, actually a comparison of two people. One is the normal body weight, average body weight, and the other was like obese. At the time, Zheng Yu was overweight. Had read about the consequences of obesity and stuff, but the moment that I saw the real specimen, I was really shocked. The two bodies were frozen and then cut into slices horizontally into about 200 
slices. And you can see that the thickness of the, the fat, how the fat is actually squeezing all your internal organs, and the organs got less and less spaces to function. You can see all that. The fat cells is accumulating around the liver, and it, the liver is really suffering. You know, all that, it's very clear visually. I was there and observing the specimen so long. I really liked the specimen. I think it was a really big lesson. I was like, you know, if you don't really control this, you're gonna die like that specimen. So it encouraged you to try to lose weight. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking, really, if, if I don't do something to fight against this obesity, I would die sooner. That's for sure. I can see that how a person would die sooner with so much fat, so much redundant fat. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, no, I don't want to die soon. I would say the whole experience is uh, is very positive. In another room, he saw another specimen that changed him. It was a small little room, and there was a sign that only adults are allowed to go into that section, and there was really just that one specimen in there. He couldn't say whether this change was positive. When I got in there, I saw two people, one on the top, one on the bottom, and then the one on the top has a penis, and the penis was in the vagina. And uh, to show everything, including the external and internal organs, these two corpses were cut into two halves vertically. So everything was cut into half, including the penis, vagina. But it was uh, very shocking. I felt really complicated. And I went back there another time a few days later, and I, I had to really rationalize my experience a lot. And I had to tell myself, this is really just to show me how it works. You know, um, there's, you know if, if you feel anything, other things, Forget about any other things you see this. This is knowledge. This is just about how human body parts work together, you know, just learn. But then I realized that after that, every time I had sex or seeing other naked like people, I just couldn't get rid of that that visual. Before I saw everything, sex meant one thing, but after I saw that sex started to mean something very different. I don't know how to say this. I, I can't get rid of a certain level of rationalness when I have sex, you know? I can't, I can't get rid of that fully. If you don't really know the internal structure and all that, this is really not what you think when you have sex. Like sex means affection, you know, touch, I don't know. Everyone can describe it in a different way, but however you describe it, it's not going to be how you see it in the plastinarium. What made me feel comfortable is always that this is not my unique experience. A lot of people are looking into that. Medical students have to go through all this. If I were the only person has been experiencing that, I would totally freak out. But you were a digital imaging guy, you know, you... you you weren't necessarily up for this journey that you ended up going on. You know, like doctors know that part of becoming a doctor is becoming, uh, maybe callous is the wrong word. I think the word callous is appropriate. I did feel that way, but I guess I don't find it wrong to have callous. 
to have calluses about anything. I guess when we age, when we grow older, our skin is getting less sensitive. Everything is probably getting less and less sensitive. You don't feel as sad. And the, usually, the things that usually hurt you when you were in your 20s probably wouldn't hurt you that, as much when you were 40. Yeah, so I took it very positively and I don't think it was a bad thing to become less sensitive to this shocking images and uh, to death. Body World's project, the change in meaning from grisly to wondrous that Dr. Von Hagens describes, depends on the gift this understanding that these people chose to become objects of study. In Body World's informational donor brochure, current donors give all kinds of reasons why. One decided at a young age that they didn't want to be buried. Another cites the high cost of the funeral and the subsequent plot maintenance. Several like the idea of a second life of world travel once they're gone. Many simply believe in the value of anatomy. Maybe it goes without saying that Dr. Von Hagens is a donor. I asked Zheng Yu if he'd ever consider giving his own body. Well, I would. I would, but I think I would probably would um, add something. They can use any of my body parts, but I don't want them to really forget about the parts that they don't use and then put my liver into a big refrigerator with all the unknown body parts. I just want them to say, if you find my liver, say, usable, use it, and then cremate the rest of my I would say. Zhang Yu was laid off during downsizing a few years ago. He said he misses the work. I enjoyed working with these people a lot. I admired pretty much everyone for how courageous and smart they are. I would be very happy to live there for several more years, I guess. I didn't want to leave. For the last few years, Dr. Von Hagens has lived in an apartment at the Plastinarium. Zhang Yu lives in Nam Pen where he works as a translator. I walk like a cow's cow this episode was written and produced by me, Pierce Gelly. Editorial help from Sarah Ann Carter, Natalie Wright, and Jonathan Brown. Thanks to Brooklyn Ryder and Beverly Tender for letting me score this episode with their music. You can learn more about that music and read a transcript of the episode at our website, cellardoor.audio. That website and our logo were designed by Wynn Patterson. Our theme music is by Daniel Nass. Cellardoor is a project of the Chipstone Foundation, an organization devoted to the study of material culture and decorative arts. You can visit our galleries at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and you can learn more about us at chipstone.org.